Well, this morning, um, we are in 1 Corinthians. Last week, we kicked off our 12-week study in this book, and we kicked it off by taking a brief historical tour through the ancient city of Corinth. You can see its location on the map here. Corinth is in the Roman province of Achaia, right at the head of a most strategic isthmus. And last week, we learned some of the historical context behind Paul's letter the magnificence of this city, the incredible games, that would be the Olympics and the Isthmian games. And we also looked at the church in Corinth and a glimpse, took a glimpse at some of the major issues that they were struggling with. And I also highlighted three fascinating videos online, three links on the homepage of our community. If you haven't seen those, I encourage you to. You will feel like you've been to Corinth. I've already had several people come to me and say, we never would have known those things. This really changes the way we look at this book. So, and of course, if you missed part one of this sermon series last week, you can watch that on our live stream if you'd like, the intro to this book. Now, I'm not going to repeat any of that historical background information today since it's all available online. Today, we're going to dive right into our verse-by-verse study of the text And we need to put our spiritual seatbelts on because the book of 1 Corinthians is going to take us for a ride. As I continued studying this book this past week, I found found myself again marveling at the wisdom of God in the Bible. I have never come across anything so profound in regards to understanding life and understanding the heart and the things of God as what I find in the Bible. And I know that many of you would say the same thing. 1 Corinthians is definitely going to continue to meet that expectation. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you haven't already. We will be studying the first nine verses this morning. Would you listen as I read? Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, In all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's again bow our heads. Heavenly Fathers, we approach your word. We're reminded that you are about to reveal to us pure truth. Lord, give us ears also to hear and a heart to obey. How we look forward to you giving us the lamp and the light that we need for our path this very day and this week. Every one of us has struggles in life. Every one of us has blessings in life. 
And we want to see, Lord, that you are sovereign in all of these things. That you have not lost control. Actually, Lord, you are working all things together for good to those who love you and called according to your purpose. So we look forward now to seeing what you will do through the power of your Holy Spirit, through your word, in our hearts and lives today and this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let's walk our way through this amazing text. Verse 1, it says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Here we see Paul identifying himself and as, as the author, he is claiming apostolic authority to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ based on the sovereign will of God. This is no small introduction he gives here in this first sentence. Interestingly, Paul reminds the Corinthians ten times in this book that he is an apostle by divine calling. That's more than any other letter he wrote. And if you've studied this book before, then you know that he's reminding the believers of his apostleship because his spiritual authority and his teachings were being attacked by both outsiders of the church and people inside. People were questioning, people were doubting not only what he had to teach, but the authority that he had to teach it. If you want to tear down someone's teaching, attack their authority. This was just mentioned in our Sunday school class this morning. That's what was being attempted in this young church. Now remember, Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples, not one of the original 12 apostles. He never saw Jesus. He was actually an enemy of the church, as you know, imprisoning, persecuting, and even orchestrating the murder of some believers. His reputation was spread far and wide, and it caused fear in the young church. But then God came to him on the road to Damascus, and Paul met the Savior in a most miraculous way. Matter of fact, let me just read to you a few verses from Acts chapter 9. You don't need to turn there out. Let me just read them real quick. It says, Now Saul, that was Paul before his name was changed, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, that is the priest of the Jewish synagogue that opposed the early church, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, capital W, any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He was blinded by the light. If you want to know the rest of the story, why well, you'll just have to read the rest of Acts chapter 9. But for today, we have to remember Paul's background to understand his introduction in this book. 
And yes, Jesus went on to personally, from heaven, call Paul to be an apostle, specifically to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But we can begin to understand why Paul would now be challenged on his leadership, even though the challenge had no grounds. And indeed, it came with wicked motives. So also in verse 1, we see that Paul included Sosthenes in this greeting. Who is Sosthenes? And how would you like that for a name? That's an interesting one. This is a very interesting relationship. Let, let's do, uh, flip over for just a moment to Acts chapter 18. Turn to Acts 18. And let's look at verses 12 to 17. As most commentaries conclude, we're fairly safe to assume that this is the same person Paul is referring to in both of these books. So Acts 18, and the, that the authors are referring to in both these books. Acts 18, verse 12, says, But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that is, governor of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, that is, the Bema seat. You saw the actual judgment seat in Corinth, and you heard the, an explanation of, in the, of that in the video links that we shared last week. So verse 13, the Jews were saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. You get his drift here. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Acts gives us an insight into the bigger picture here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Sosthenes, now in Ephesus with Paul, was originally from Corinth. He was previously a leader in the Corinthian Jewish synagogue, which again opposed the new church of Christian believers. Sosthenes was an enemy of the Christian church, much like Paul. And not only that, we see in Acts 18 that he was part of the uprising that arrested Paul and took him before Gallio. And after being embarrassed and pushed aside by Gallio, the mob that had formed around the Bema seat, the judgment seat, turned and beat Sosthenes. Now, we don't know all the details of this beating. Perhaps... This was a group of Gentiles who just didn't like the Jews and took advantage of the situation. Or perhaps it was the Jews beating Sosthenes for not presenting their case better against Paul. Regardless, we get a little flavor of the life in Corinth. And we now come to Ephesus and the writing of 1 Corinthians. And who do we see standing alongside Paul in the faith and the work of the gospel? Sosthenes. This was a powerful testimony of the life-changing and life-saving power of the gospel, one that would speak volumes to the Corinthian believers. Acknowledging Sosthenes, the prior leader of the synagogue, a very influential person, only added weight 
to the seriousness of this letter. This is just fascinating. If we don't do good historical study, we miss much of the exciting drama surrounding these verses, and consequently, we miss some of the depth of the meaning in them. So verse 2 says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now verse 2 on the service is just, again, part of the introduction. Verse 1, who the letter is from. Verse 2, who the letter is to. But beneath the surface, verse 2 is teaching one of the most important lessons regarding our relationship with other believers. Remember, Corinth has issues. This verse, by Paul's example, teaches us to never lose sight of the fact that those brothers and sisters in Christ who have issues, who have problems, who bother us, who irritate us, who sin, they too have been sanctified, set apart, made holy, been made holy in Christ Jesus. Whether we like it or not, and we should, they are fellow saints in the family and kingdom of God. And that's a big family. As the verse says, the family in every place. And it was God who called them to salvation, just like He called us. If we have issue with them, then we have issue with God. Because by nature of our calling to salvation, we share the same Father. He is just as much their Lord as ours. I don't believe Paul was buttering up the Corinthians for the series of reprimands that he was about to deliver throughout the rest of this letter. That's not the character of Paul that we see here or anywhere throughout his writings. He genuinely viewed them as fellow believers, fellow saints, fellow heirs, fellow recipients of the wonderful grace of Jesus. He was letting them know that and he was reminding himself of this here at the beginning of the letter. Likewise for us, we learn that when it comes to getting along in the church, which is one of the major themes of this book, we need to remember that that sister on the other side of the sanctuary is not the devil. That brother on the other side of the aisle is not a heathen. That spouse or that sibling, that friend is not the enemy. If these people profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, then we must view them as being chosen by God called by God, sanctified by God, just like us. Yes, Paul is about to address the awful sins that were dividing these believers. But before he does, he defines a proper perspective of all believers and he levels the playing field in the church. He reminds us that we are all recipients of grace. We all have the same Lord Jesus Christ. We are in this together. If we at Discovery are going to learn from this book to the Corinthians, if we are going to grow wiser from it and be further sanctified by it, if we're going to become more united as a church family, then we need to make sure that we are viewing each other properly. Verse 3. Here we see Paul 
Again, in one simple sentence, lay yet another layer of foundational truth when he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's so easy to skim over verses like this because we just think they're the introduction. They're just the greeting. We see these verses regularly. But what is Paul saying here? Don't forget that the power, that's the grace, and the peace, whether spiritually or interpersonally, relationally, corporately, or all of the above, the power and the peace that we need so desperately is only to be found in God. And it is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there is the deity of the Son. We have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's easy to nod our head in agreement with truths like this, but then it's also easy to walk out of here and to act like the power and the peace are up to us. The peace is up to that other person. That peace will be found in the world or in another family member or it's through psychology or we'll find that power in our own best efforts. Paul says, don't reach for your bootstraps. Don't flex your spiritual muscles. Don't, waste your, don't, don't wave your peace flag. Don't promote your own peace pact. It is not about you. It is not about me. Power and peace that the church then and today so desperately needs come from above. Before Paul shares another word in this letter, he first has to deliver that truth. Before we look around, we need to look up. The grace to hear what's coming in this letter and the grace to honor it and obey it comes from above. That's a strength that we can only find in God. I believe that one of the hardest truths for Christians, especially seasoned Christians, to understand, at least I have found this to be the case with me, is that obedience is a miracle. Every parent knows that. When pure obedience comes from a Christ-like heart, it is a supernatural event. The same for peace. Peace isn't only the absence of a storm. Sometimes, oftentimes, if not most of the time, it's the calm under the cleft of the rock during the storm. Like a mother hen with her chicks during the rain and thunder, peace is most valued, most obvious, most distinct in the shelter under the wing of the Almighty. If we are going to make any progress as a church, if we are going to make progress in unity. And if unity, true deep unity, is going to reign in this church family, it's going to be because God stepped into the picture. What a tragedy if we begin our study in 1 Corinthians thinking it's up to us. We can do this. The truth is, no, we can't. Sadly, history shows us countless well-intentioned Christians who spent so much of their life and effort trying to prove what only God can do through the radically life-changing and life-empowering power of the Word alone. 
through the Spirit of God alone. Sanctification is a divine achievement. We were saved by grace. We will grow by grace. We will finish the race by grace, by grace alone. The good news of this intro in 1 Corinthians, the hope, the inspiration, is that God can do it. He does pour out His grace and peace upon those who humble themselves before Him and His Word in loving faith and obedience. Let's look at verse 4. This is the introduction point that is, has impacted me personally the most over the past few weeks of study. I love how the Word of God meets us right where we are in life. For some here, it'll be verse 1. For others, it'll be verse 2. Others, 3. God meets us and His Spirit speaks to us right where we are in life. So verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you realize it, but as you and I walk down the trail of this text, we just stepped on a gold bar. We just kicked a diamond in the dirt. Did you see it sparkle as we read through verse 4? We could easily stop right here and spend the rest of today's study. What did Paul just say to these immature, immoral, selfish, conceited, can't-get-along saints in the church of Corinth? I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. If you and I hear nothing else this morning, let us hear this verse. That is a shocking statement. What did Paul just say? After spending a year and a half with these people, I mean, seriously, they had the Apostle Paul all to themselves for a year and a half on his prior missionary journey just a few years prior. After a year and a half, Paul gets word back from multiple people that this church is acting like a bunch of brats, only worse. And this is one of the first things out of his mouth to them. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Your mind is probably racing like mine when I first read this. It's examples like this that humble us and show us what real Christianity acts like. When other believers in the church mess up, when they start acting like children, when they sin, is the first thing out of your and my mouth, oh, how I thank God every day for saving that person. I rejoice that we are part of the family of God together. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a parent or spouse, a sibling or a friend, a Sunday school teacher or an usher. When it comes time for us to work through issues with our spouse or sibling or friend or other person in the church, if there isn't a genuine spirit of thankfulness for God's saving that person, then we'd better shut it right there and go back to our prayer closet until God performs spiritual surgery on our arrogant little heart. Can I get an amen? In all seriousness, if we can't thank God for that person and their salvation and their part in the family of God, then something is bad wrong in our own heart. And I fear we will not hear anything 
in the rest of this book. How can we effectively minister the love of God to people we despise? How can we compassionately minister the truth of God to people we're rejecting? The compassion of Jesus, when He looked on the multitudes, will forever overwhelm my heart. Compassion doesn't run from the hurting people. Compassion runs to them. In half a sentence, Paul teaches us one of life's greatest relationship lessons for believers. We must sincerely be grateful to God for that person and their salvation. You and I should be able to picture the believer in our life who is causing us the most angst. And we should be able to say, thank you, Lord, for your salvation in that person's life. Thank you for bringing us together in the family of God for your good purposes. This is one of the starting blocks for making progress in broken and hurting relationships. Thank you, Lord. Let's be very clear here, though, lest there be any hint of misunderstanding. We don't thank God for sin in another person. We don't thank God for the effects of sin. Those are a curse. We thank God for the person and specifically for the love He gave them and the relationship He gave them and the hope He offers them and the truth He gives them to grow and the power to do it. Then and only then can we really be a humble and effective instruments, instrument in the hands of God in the life of that person and others around us. Knowing what we know about the issues in the Corinthian church, we should marvel that Paul was able to so sincerely and freely say those words right at the start of this letter. There is no doubt that this is one of the primary reasons why the Holy Spirit was able to minister so powerfully through Paul, not only to the Corinthian church, but to the worldwide church for thousands of years to come. And there is no doubt that this is one of the primary reasons why the Holy Spirit is not ministering powerfully through so many people in the body of Christ because they are against each other rather than for each other, rather than with each other, for the gospel, by the grace of God, to the glory of God alone, and not to their own. The church is too often unnecessarily and sinfully divided. But the Word of God offers a solution. And we are going to find that throughout the pages of this book. For now, Paul goes on in verse 5 to expand on his gratefulness for the work of salvation in the Corinthian church. This is huge because what Paul is about to give them is their identity. Verse 5, I thank God that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
There is so much wisdom there, so much example of how to see others, particularly others in our church family, particularly others in our church family who are struggling with issues in their Christian faith. By the way, that would be every single one of us, right? We all need the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul sets a remarkable example of how to see people when they're struggling. Let me read these verses again. Remember, these are coming from the mouth of a man who is about to confront a boatload of sin in this church. He says, I thank God that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you, you struggling Christians. Jesus Christ will confirm you to the end. You immature Christians, the weak Christians, the sinning Christians, you too will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul sets an example of how to see saved sinners. Sometimes all we see is the struggle, the issue, the offense, the hurt that is caused to others or to ourselves. That's when we need to remind ourselves of what Paul saw first. This is the lens through which he views the faults of other believers. And just for the record, this is the lens through which we should see ourselves as well, especially when we are depressed and overcome with discouragement and frustration in the mistakes, the sins that we make. Paul lays out our identity magnificently here. He gives six truth points to focus on. Number one, we are rich in Christ. In spite of ourselves, we are rich in Christ in a way that we did not earn, in a way that we did not deserve. God has afforded you and me, what does Scripture say? Every spiritual blessing needed for this life and the life to come. We call that sufficient grace. God has ministered all speech and knowledge to us through His Word and His Spirit. One of the greatest quests of man is to know truth. Paul reminds us right here, God has revealed all the truth that you and I need. And He has given us all the ability we need to live by faith and share His truth with others. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In 2 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, 2-3, the Apostle Peter said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And speaking of the equipping through the Holy Spirit, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, 
nor let it be fearful. What amazing words. Point number two regarding our identity in Christ. Christ is confirmed in us. Verse six. The Holy Spirit enters us at the point of salvation and confirms our forgiveness and eternal life. Confirms. He is the seal. He is the proof of our salvation. He bears fruit that we could not bear in ourselves. He changes the desires of our heart. He causes us to hunger and thirst after righteousness because we are a new creature. While the fulfillment of our salvation is yet to fully be realized, we have a confirmation and assurance that our forgiveness is complete and eternity with God awaits us at the end of this life. Thirdly, Paul shows that we are not lacking in any gift in verse 7. Similarly to the first point, we not only know through the Word and Spirit everything we need to know, we also have every ability needed to accomplish the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Scripture fully equips men and women to do every good work that God calls them to do. We see that in 2 Timothy 3.17. Paul is going to address the wealth of spiritual gifts given to the church later in this book. Fourth, Paul commends the church and reminds them of their eager anticipation of Christ's return when He will be revealed fully to us. We will see Christ. Part of what defines us is our excitement at the thought of Christ's imminent return. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw James touch on this in, in James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Fifth, we see the confirmation of our salvation and that it will never fail. You see this in verse 8. Paul reminds us that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, not just the Spirit, but He Himself will confirm us to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a promise of immeasurable significance and value to every Christian. When we stand before God and give an account, Jesus will stand in front of us and we will be determined blameless. This is one of the major truths that separates the Christian faith from every other religion in this world. We do not need to fear and wonder and speculate and worry over the question, what if I don't measure up when I get to heaven? What if I fall short? What if I wasn't good enough? Scripture teaches us in Romans 3 that we can never be good enough for the glory and, to, and holiness of God. But our substitute was the spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world was good enough, perfectly good enough. And Paul reminds us here that that goodness never ends. It never fails in the life of a believer. No matter how many issues, 
no matter how many struggles and sins and weaknesses there are in us, it is the confirmation of Jesus Christ that guarantees our righteousness in the end. Peter also understood these truths, and he mentioned them again in the introduction of his letter, 1 Peter 1, 3-8. We touched on the first verse just a couple minutes ago. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see all the parallels in these two passages? They affirm the truths of each other. The riches of the inheritance that belong to the believer and will not fade away. They will be reserved for us in heaven. We see the protecting and the keeping power of God. We see the faithfulness of God all the way to the end. We see the proof and the confirmation of our faith. We see the sure return of our Savior. These are the believer's hope and identity. We are children of God with a host of promises that define us. They define our journey. They define our destiny. In a world of uncertain, of, in a world of frightening uncertainty, we can be absolutely certain in Christ. Back in 1 Corinthians, the sixth and final point Paul makes is this. God is faithful. Verse 9. God is faithful. It's the faithfulness of God that brings all this together. When we are not faithful, God is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 When someone we love is not faithful, God is faithful. It's not the end of the world when we or other people disappoint and make mistakes and have problems. It is the end of the world if God fails. But no, God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7.9 Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. This is yet another foundational truth in Paul's introduction in this letter. Knowing where Paul is going with this book, it's good for us to ask ourselves, when we see the faults of others, even our own, is the faithfulness of God also in view? Why should we be thankful for others? It's not because they're such a great person. It's not because he's so dependable. It's not because she's so spiritual but because God is so faithful to them and through them. Apart from the faithfulness of God, none of us can stand. The faithfulness of God should be ringing in our ears, especially when we look into the face of a brother or sister who is struggling in their Christian faith. 
before Paul dives into his lecture, his reprimands, his series of corrections, he first proclaims this truth. God is faithful. Paul is setting such an incredible example for us of how to lovingly and truthfully disciple others and how to lovingly and truthfully allow the Word of God to disciple ourselves. There's a lot of talk these days about identity. We won't get real deep into it here, but if you're struggling with your identity in Christ, your identity as a Christian, who am I? What am I worth? What good is there in me? Then take, take a deep, good, long look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Before you and I start addressing our sins and our weaknesses and those in the church, we must address first who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us and how faithful God will be. You see, our identity isn't so much about us as it is Christ. He and what He has done becomes our identity. This is one of the themes of the cross. It's why we reverently and worshipfully, worshipfully celebrate Good Friday. Only a Christian can even begin to understand the splendor of Galatians 2.20, which Pastor, Pastor Mark recently preached on. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, <clears throat> who loved me and gave Himself for me. If you're a Christian, then that's who you are. And Paul launches the book of 1 Corinthians with these life-guiding truths. If there is going to be growth and healing and power and unity in the church, it will be on the foundation of these first nine verses. Now, I was desperately hoping to get to the end of this chapter today, but I don't dare touch the next eight verses if you want lunch anytime soon. We're going to save that for next week. Ten weeks left, 15 and a half chapters to go. Isn't the Word of God awesome? I love it. Next week, we're going to continue at verse 10 and see how intellectual pride and religious affiliations with certain strong Christian leaders became a point of serious division in the Corinthian church, and it hurt their witness for Christ. Thank God that would never happen in a Baptist church like ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled at your word. We are humbled that you would share your word with us. We see the love of God not only in sending his son to die on the cross, to come back to life, to conquer sin and death for us. We see the love of God in the word of God given to us. Indeed, the son himself. Thank you for how you 
you alone, through the power of your Spirit, have ministered truth to our hearts and minds today. Lord, help us to see others through the lens of what we have just read. Lord, may it be said of every person in this church that they are thankful to God for every other person in this church and the salvation that has been given them. Lord, may we truly be able to thank you for each other and your great salvation. Lord, help us to know who we are in Christ Jesus. It's not about us. It is about Him and what He has done and who He is in us. That is our identity. And what a wonderful identity you have given us in Christ Jesus. We praise you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.